Nick Ngor has been with IBM for more than 20 years and currently serves as the director of IBM's Digital Asset Labs. But prior to that role, Nitin was instrumental in developing and running IBM's blockchain labs. In this episode, he and Ian discuss all things blockchain, the challenges and opportunities of the technology, and what blockchain means to enterprises everywhere. Enjoy their talk. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other line, Nitin, how's it going? Good. Thanks, Ian, for having me. Yeah, exciting to talk about blockchain today. We've uh, we've only done a couple episodes so far on blockchain, um, and specifically today we want to talk all things blockchain in the enterprise, the role of blockchain, uh, and how it'll shape the future of business, um, some challenges, use cases, and everything in between. But first, how'd you get into technology? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think after my grad grad school. Um, I was hired by IBM, and so I moved to Austin, Texas, and that was my entry into technology. And it's, it's never been a dull moment since. I've moved almost religiously every three years to explore new areas, uh, starting from systems. This is the early days of internet, and here we are in the next wave, as we say, which has been replaced by blockchain. So it has been a very interesting journey for me at IBM. You know, when did you kind of get started in blockchain? What was your what was your kind of first foray into uh, into this new technology? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Ian. Because I used to run the as a CTO of mobile payments in IBM. This is pre Apple Pay and pre the era where now we use phone as a primary payment instrument. And in that moment, we were trying to figure out as to what do we do as a company to be able to make a mark in this mobile payment space. So we did research and I, you know, in that phase, we met many of our clients, the leading payment processors, payment networks, and various payment sort of ecosystem players. And in every conversation, we heard blockchain being mentioned. And of course, early on, about seven or eight years back, the construct around blockchain was centered around Bitcoins. So uh, we went back in the labs, did extensive research, and internally positioned to understand the role of blockchain in payment systems. And that was the sort of the the genesis inside of you know our work in understanding, conceptualizing, and you know figuring out as to pay you know blockchain as a as a transaction system. And that was our initial entry point into blockchain. And of course, like any big corporation, you have to make a business case, and we did. We spent some time with the senior execs, helping them understand that it's not about Bitcoin, which was cliched and which was uh, laden with many of the nuances of, of cryptocurrencies, but to fully understand what technology can bring to the table as a transaction system. And lo and behold, uh, a few years later, we actually decided to go all in in terms of creating a business unit and spending the right talent, technology resources to be able to position this for our clients. And today we have a, we have a product that addresses the blockchain agenda for us. And I want to get 
into kind of the role of blockchain in the enterprise? Like in terms of the the larger ecosystem, like how is this how has it been playing out? What has blockchain been doing for enterprise companies? So it's it's interesting, right? Because I think you know we've labeled 2019 as the era for blockchain for enterprise. And I recently published a book with some of my co-authors, also very leading industry players, my mentor, Jerry Como, and another good colleague of mine, Jay, we published a book called Blockchain for Business. And we've laid out some of the lessons learned and challenges in terms of the enterprise adoption of blockchain. So we broadly categorize blockchain in two different camps. One is the permissionless camp, which is the larger ecosystem that's evolving on these public blockchain networks, Ethereum, EOS, like networks, which are taking its own life form. And then you have the incumbents, which is the banks, financial institutions, supply chain, trying to consume, adopt the benefits of technology and understanding it, but at the same time, uh, building an infrastructure, building an ecosystem around that permissioned network. So as an enterprise player, we, of course, using our regular client base and also working with the industries are trying to capture the essence of that permissioned world. And so in that case, I think there are certain industries that are ahead in adoption and consumption of technology in improvising not just the business processes, but also flattening the overall business systems that have been evolved over time. But then you also have many regulated industries, financial services, capital markets, capital market infrastructures, who have to go a bit longer way in understanding some of the uh, regulatory framework and some of the technology challenges that is yet to be solved, like scalability and security. And that work is well underway, I think. Are there any particular use cases that you've seen that you were really excited about kind of like early on that you looked at and thought, wow, this is going to be huge? So it's a good question you bring up this because I think, and I've written about this in the topic called instance economy. It's it's not about simply digitizing today's processes, right? I mean, oftentimes the first step we take in the enterprise world is using blockchain as a vehicle to streamline business process between multiple enterprises because we've already done a lot of streamlining in a single enterprise. And when multiple enterprises get into business, their individual business processes sort of become an impediment in a more smoother function of movement of assets, right? Multiple banks, multiple financial institutions, multiple sort of entities involved in supply chain are a perfect example. And so early days, blockchain was used as a vehicle to bring these entities together to flatten that business process and using technology to share information. But then a few years back, we took a step back and said, blockchain is really meant for asset movement not really for information dissemination, right? Because we have enough technology today to move from asynchronous to a more synchronous information dissemination model, but going after truly treating blockchain as a network to move value, move assets. So then we have to go down the path of defining what's a digital asset in the system, and that is very domain specific. What I mean by that is in a supply chain network, you could have a digital asset as a container, and that container would have to go through different shipping ports. It would have to have the financial networks like bill of lading, letter of credit. That is the financial instrument that rides with these containers and so on and so forth. So I think that the industries that are, that are at the cusp of leveraging from the cost inefficiency in the system 
are benefiting rather faster than let's say financial services today because there are much more regulatory considerations there are much more cybersecurity considerations that need to be hashed out as opposed to let's say supply chain where we can simply create tokenized digital assets and let the industry consume them and create new business flows and and new business systems from that perspective but the holy grail taking a pause at that initial foray the holy grail for us is to be able to do what internet has done for information which is making information easily accessible, easily available to anybody in the world. I think our aspirational goal is to do just that with blockchain, which is ability for a farmer in Nigeria, a farmer in India, to be able to make an investment into these developed economies as little as a few hundred dollars, for example, without going through this complex international sort of movement of money and securities. I think that is the sort of model where we want to have equal opportunity creation, financial inclusion. And I think we are slowly progressing there at some point, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a specific like time or example when you saw something early on and the power of that, that kind of blew your mind seeing it, you know, happen in real time? Or was it kind of just a slow build where you were seeing it like so often? I think if you look at the M-Pesa movement, Right. I mean, I've traveled the world extensively working with clients and understanding different social and technology systems because every country and every society has a context, right? Our American contexts don't necessarily apply in Uganda or India. And so I think in many cases, the M-Pesa movement was an eye-opener for many of us in the early days of payments to realize that, you know, that there was this whole movement of creating fungibility by, by your telecommunication systems, which was never designed for financial transactions and eventually morphed into a multi-country, multi-city network of moving funds and banks were completely excluded from that. Of course, that has changed now over time. I think that is you know, necessity taking form in terms of using what's available to make the best of technology we have today, right? So I think what I begin to see now in many economies is that the, especially the millennials who are redefining the way we live, redefining the way we own things, redefining the way we transact uh, in simple things like, you know, renting apartments, uh, being able to pay for a fraction of their usage models, uh, the ability for us to be able to generate energy and be able to have right partitioned ownership of that energy generation and dissemination. So I think some of these are mind-blowing use cases and, and they're not far off. I think we've seen many places where these are slowly being implemented after initial successful proof of concepts. And it's a reality only because of uh, generational demand. But at the same time, I think it makes economic sense. When these two, these two things meet, I think the technology itself flourishes and then there's no going back from there. I think. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard that um, I was at an event and they were sharing stories of how women in Syria who were journalists, they were trying to be journalists. I guess they were journalists. They were trying to be paid for being journalists and they had no method of being able to like make money, you know, previously to that. And they were leveraging, you know, blockchain to, not only share information, but also pay each other through this network. You just think about like 
how, as you were mentioning, country by country, potentially, you know, state by state, the use cases are so different. They're so vast. It's, it, it feels similar to the internet with the amount of, you know, use cases that are, that are exponential, which, which I think is so interesting and exciting, but also there, there's so much confusion around it, specifically with, you know, how many things that enterprises could, could use it for. Do you think that there is that that confusion could be extremely challenging for like the enterprise businesses? So I wouldn't use the word challenge. I would use the word opportunity, which means that, of course, there's a challenge and challenge presents an opportunity. So I think uh, they are correlated to me. And we've seen, again, giving an M-Pesa example, I think there was a point in time, if I recall my statistics, there was $22 million exchange between Uganda and Tanzania. And actually, I went in the region to study how those systems are, are, are preserved. And there was not a single bank involved in that transaction at the time. And so, so banks had to innovate, you know, and then eventually Safaricom, which was the, the telecommunication entity there, you know, had to bank because at some point you've got to keep your money somewhere in a regulated entity. And that's where the banks got involved. And suddenly now we have a flurry of cross-border payments networks. You hear about Venmo, WeChat, Tencent, you know, so all these companies are, you know, it's a whole revolution that has moved. So just about, 10 years later, you realize the cost of moving money has drastically gone down. It's still high in some cases. So I think that necessity and ability of the entities to seize the opportunity and create the system based on existing technology or create new technology on top, I think is very powerful. And I think eventually blockchain as a trusted transactional system and its ability to adhere to some of the fundamentals of trade, trust, ownership, will solve that issue of time and trust. And these two constructs have enormous implications on most industries, whether it's financial services, because it takes time to move money. And when it takes time to move the money, the value of that capital is locked for one, two, or six weeks in some cases, because it just takes time to move money between countries. So some entity comes in, and says that I'm going to keep the liquidity on two ends and I'm going to charge you a fee for it. And then comes in something like blockchain where I can digitize, for example, fiat or tokenize money and move the money in real time and charge you much lesser fee and, and provide you much better liquidity and instant access to your funds, which leads to, again, utilizing the capital instantly and, and making use of it. I tell you that it's a progressive element that suddenly you have a progressive uh, use of technology and eventually it leads to an exponential adoption only because you've seen success in few markets and few geos. And suddenly now the context takes over and takes that technology and morphs it into its own contextual sort of values, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. You know, you wrote in your post that most blockchain monetization strategies include, but are not limited to kind of these five, uh, these five things, the token-based models, tokens as a medium of exchange, asset pair trading, commercialization of the protocol, and the power of networks. Can you kind of like peel back the onion a little bit on kind of why you wrote that and, and what you were talking about with business models and blockchain? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's, a, that's completely a different. So the reason why I wrote that blog post, which is a recent blog post that I wrote, because there's a lot of confusion into how do you monetize it. Somehow people think, 
just doing blockchain is magic and you can make a lot of money from it, whether you create your own network and you create it. But there are a lot of economic concepts to a network. You know, all of us need a framework. We need a model that we can understand and be able to explain not to only our clients, but to the people we interact with to be able to come to a common vocabulary, define a common taxonomy. So in most cases, blockchain is a trust network which allows you to exchange things of value. That's the fundamental reason why we have this network, which means that it's a platform for disintermediation that today we have intermediaries. And the goal is that if I create a system that has trusted entities on the network, then they should be able to transact without a notion of an intermediary that provides, again, trust service or time service. So again, going back to time and trust. In that network, you define value by either having a representation of physical good, which is, let's say, a container or your gold watch or a gold bar, and you tokenize it because that digital representation of the physical good or a digital twin, which is oftentimes a term used, that has to be created in the system and it has to be unique. It has to be adhering to many of the transactional capabilities of non-repudiation, ability for it to be fungible and so on and so forth, right? So that token or the digital representation becomes central to many blockchain networks, right? And so in many cases, you find blockchain networks that needs to be, you know, for example, in case of permissionless blockchain networks or, or, or public networks, somebody has to keep up the network. Like in case of permission networks, there's a consortium or there are a bunch of entities that have to keep the systems up and running. There's a certain investment that goes into creating these consortiums, creating the technical infrastructure. But in case of permission networks or permissionless networks, you need to have an incentive infrastructure that promotes the various entities to keep up for the sake of business continuity, for sake of transaction processing, and they all have to be incentivized for them to be able to earn. So the token-based model, which is the first model we talk about, is that you have a systemic thing of value, which is called a token, which gets generated based on the incentive economics of you upkeeping and maintaining those systems. You can may call it mining or minting, and there's a whole slew of vernacular tied to the underlying consensus system that deals with it. And that becomes a primary business model for those networks. Like Bitcoin, Ethereum are perfect examples that it's a community-driven approach and communities incentivized to keep the health of the network, the security of the network, which leads to other businesses bringing their transactional volume to the network because they know that the network is resilient, it's performant, and it has certain service level agreements, guarantees that go with it. And because you have the token in the network, the same token that is used as a transaction fee for processing transaction can be used as a medium of exchange. Bitcoin, a perfect example, that I can buy and sell Bitcoin in, or Ethereum in their respective networks, and they're fungible for, for our fiat, which is the cash that me and you use for our daily living. And so in that case, I can send money through various channels and own a token and so it's used as a, as, a, as a medium of exchange or as a step through currency of sorts. For example, if you want to exchange Indian rupees to Nigerian Nairas, these two currencies are not exa exactly fungible. So you need a third currency like a US dollar, which is universally accepted currency as a step through currency. It's yeah. a medium of exchange. So many of these tokens in these networks are used as a medium of exchange, whether you're creating a FX or foreign exchange model, or you're basically creating a, 
uh, ability to use this token to define what gold bar is and be able to exchange gold bar for cash, all on these underlying sort of constructs that the network enables for you. A few of the models are asset pair trading models, which means that I can trade one asset for the other because the two networks you know, are there. And you, you know, irony of all ironies is that you have exchanges these days for crypto assets, which shouldn't exist because the whole point of blockchain is to not have any intermediaries. But we are in that phase at the moment where uh, you have to trust somebody to be able to move these different disparate digital assets from one network to another network. And then eventually you have the tech companies like IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, and many of the other startup entities who are trying to commercialize the protocol by offering technology services, node hosting services to the enterprise to say, I can give you a cheaper CPU, cheaper memory, so you can run your servers, which will help you be a part of the network and plug into that incentive economic system of the network. So these are the four or five models that I have described in the write-up, but the objective was to understand where you are, because depending on the business structure you have, if you happen to be a tech company or you're technologically you know, oriented, you will focus on protocol commercialization because that is something you're comfortable with. And if you happen to be an entity that is into a creating new business model and new business structure, then you will actually go towards a medium of exchange model or an asset pair trading model and create new business model for, let's say, creating fungibility that has never existed before. For example, what Ripple and what Stellar, for example, and this is public information, have attempted to do is basically act as a medium of exchange or a step through currency, thereby speeding up the movement of money and reduce the cost of transfer of funds between two parties. So these are the new business models that are being created, which I think is phenomenal for the industry in general because such innovations in every industry, whether it's cross-border payments, foreign exchange, securities lending, securities trading, for example, I think you begin to see such, such pockets of innovation happening across the globe, which I think there'll be a point where all this will converge, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, the, and it's a really good piece. We'll link it up in the show notes. But I think that the idea of, you know, this, this core technology to monetization that you talked about is where I think the market is, you know, obviously extremely nascent. Are there things that you think are kind of the low hanging fruit that people are going to go after in one of those groups, make products around it? Yeah, yeah. So I think technology commercialization is the lowest hanging fruit. You'll have many, many companies who are trying to be a technology service provider, either providing node hosting services or providing wallet services or providing talent to these tech companies to say, we can develop your you know, your dApps or, this, or your blockchain applications. So I think that's the lowest hanging fruit because one, it's technology, which means it's not regulated. You don't have to understand the core business or have experience with it and so on and so forth. But as you go up the higher stack, the different layers, you have to have some acumen. So for example, if you're doing asset pair trading, you have to know how to monetize margins. There's a specific skill set needed to understand the charts, to be able to understand the trading behaviors, to be able to understand how the markets behave. Because blockchain is not just about technology that, that initiates and facilitates movement of assets. It's also a marketplace because you are hopefully creating a, a network where the like-minded entities 
join the network and are able to transact. And as many participants as the network has, it's an enormous advantage of the network as well as liquidity in the system. So the two things we look for is the asset types and more diverse and more abundant asset types and more liquidity in the system makes the network richer. So it's not just about technology that enables movement of assets, but it's also about creating a marketplace of sorts that allows any to any transaction, right? So as yeah. you go higher echelon, as you move up the stack and you realize that many of your transactions then begin to be under purview of many regulatory frameworks that are in different countries. And that becomes a bit more complicated that if you don't really understand it, it could potentially be a operational risk of running these networks. And we've seen many such cases recently where people have tried to do things which were regulated activities and they were not licensed to do that. And that's why I think the lowest hanging fruit in this case where anybody with some technical skills is able to exploit and is able to create innovation but that innovation only is limited by the technical side of the house, which means that until you keep moving up the stack, there's only so much innovation that can be consumed, right? If you are, you know, like a CIO or a CTO, like many of our listeners or someone on the, um, you know, IT or technology teams that are looking for a way to leverage blockchain for a project or a specific business use case, what would you kind of recommend to know? Like, is there some sort of like criteria or model that you use to look at projects and determine this? No, that's a great question, Ian. Actually, in fact, the reason why I sat down for a few months to be able to sort of do the brain dump of what we've learned over the four years in the publication that we did was just to be able to address a few things, right? So what I would ask, and this is what I've asked my clients that I work with, is to at least get the foundational landscape of technology right. I think you have to understand some elements because to have a meaningful conversation and not be marred with the lower level technical details and that loses many of the senior level executives because then you, know, you, do, you do need their buy-in. Second thing I think I focus heavily on, even as a technical guy, is the business blueprint, which is to me the first step in proving the viability of applying blockchain to a business structure with the business model. What I mean by that is that if you're solving a problem for yourself, whether using blockchain and no single company can use blockchain for themselves and, and benefit from it, it has to be a ecosystem. You are joining multiple parties who don't trust each other and you should be able to transact with them. That if you're solving an issue for your own industry, then it should also be the problem of your cohorts because then it leads to a network effect. And that element is really important because you're trying to get not just your competitors, but new ecosystem players to a network. And that which means that you have to induce a sense of neutrality to these networks. So I think understanding the business model is so important that the only reason why many blockchain POCs who have been enormously successful haven't seen the light of the day because they have died with the POC because there was no business model or there was no business buy-in to yeah. take it forward, right? So I think I now begin to focus more energy on uh, senior level sponsorships, funding for these projects, the ROI models, the risk framework models, the GRC framework models to be able to say, did we get this business problem right before we start throwing technology at it? And then we, you know, once we have that piece in place, we use, I use the term business blueprint, then we begin to then map the technology blueprint to say, okay, 
We know what the business problem is. What is the right framework? What is the right technology set? What is the right encryption level? So you begin to then go into the lower level technical details, which by the way, there's a whole lot of innovation happening in that space to cherry pick the things that are most needed for these networks to be successful because the business dictates uh, the use of those technology and not the other way around. So I would say you take that path. And I think in one of my blog posts, I've talked about the, uh, the enterprise path to blockchain adoption or something that, to that effect, which gives you a clear path to say, focus more on, on defining the business blueprint before you go down the path of just doing a POC because POCs never fail. It's a controlled experiment. Who are the people at those companies that, like who are those, those leaders that are working on that sort of stuff? So what happens generally, what, what has been happening, and that actually slowing down drastically, at least from my vantage point, is that innovation teams in every company, every company has an innovation group, is tasked with understanding innovation technology and the impact of technology on their business. And rightly so, they pick projects on AI and blockchain and, and many other newer technologies that are surfacing. And to be able to prove to their business that they are effective in understanding some of these things. So many of the POCs were driven by innovation, but innovation teams have smaller budgets to be able to experiment, but they don't really have business buying yet. The objective is for the innovation groups to be able to prove a point, take a business model, and eventually use the POC to get buying from business and get funding to be able to take that POC to the next level. And I think the disconnect in what I've seen in the industry is oftentimes that the business is not on board, which means that the business has neither defined the problem or understood the return on investment or even actually put a number on the problem. Because if you don't put a number on the problem, how do you make an investment decision on that technology? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Those are the gaps that I think there's a disconnect between some of the technical work that's been done versus uh, business not being aware or business being aware that, look, this is work is happening. It looks very cool. But... To, to justify investment, they do have to go through that process and that process needs to be defined, I think. Any other things that you wanted to touch on before we, uh, before we get out of here? No, I think, uh, of course, I can talk all day on this, but uh, I think, you know, again, what I would tell them is enough complexity. The industry is either oversimplifying it or, or, or complicating it. And I think we simply follow our hearts and we simply follow a process in understanding the fundamentals and let the process take over as opposed to the tendency to oversimplify things, which I think is hurting the industry in general. Awesome. Um, actually, let's do, so let's do a quick lightning round. Let's ask a few lightning round questions, fast and easy questions. Does that sound good? Sure. Fast, uh, I'm, I'm fine, but easy, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Health app. Favorite time-saving tool? Um, meditation. Ooh, that's a good one. Favorite uh, book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Dark Money and Panama Papers. What do you do for fun? Hike. What is your best advice for a first-time CIO, CTO, or or a technology leader? Build a good team first. Have a human connection with people, and have an empathy. Uh, and I think everything will fall in place. Awesome. Then this, this has been awesome. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing some wisdom. And, uh, you know, we'll be looking forward to following along. There's so much stuff out there. 
that is yet to be discovered and uh and look forward to uh to to following following along on your on your linkedin these articles are are awesome thank you ian appreciate your time and thanks for having me Salesforce just introduced Salesforce Blockchain, the industry's first truly declarative blockchain platform integrated into your CRM. Learn more at salesforce.com slash blockchain.